Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard about a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Hi, I'm Jules, and welcome to Morbid Tourism, the podcast. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the true crime cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning, this episode contains descriptions of violence and violence against children and is not recommended for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Apologies for the delay in the release of this episode. I was having a bit of a family emergency and just mentally was not in a very good place for the last few weeks. And I always want to make sure that what I'm releasing is thoroughly researched and really given the attention and care that a sensitive topic like murder really deserves. And so as such, I've decided that I'm going to be taking a little bit of a break after this episode to catch up on research and really be able to focus on family and friends during the holiday season. But don't worry, I will be back in early January with brand new episodes that will be very thoroughly researched and I will continue to keep posting on the Instagram and the website. So if you're really in need of some true crime info, check those out. Now, for this week's episode, I wanted to focus on a case that is still open and actively being investigated. Part of the amazing thing about the true crime community is that it brings focus to cases that are still open, and as word spreads about these cases, it's very possible that information will reach someone who knows something and that they'll be able to come forward and the case will be solved. But it's also very important that we, as stewards of the crime community, proceed with caution. In the following episode, I will be playing audio of the suspect, as well as encouraging you to view police sketches of the suspect, in hopes that you, or maybe someone that you talk to, will recognize the voice or the face. But I also really want to emphasize that if you do recognize the voice or the face of the suspect in this episode or really in any ongoing true crime case, it is extremely important that you don't publicly share the name of the person that you suspect or post any information about them on social media. Things like posting side-by-side photos of them with the police sketch is really bad practice. It shouldn't be done. It makes people go on crazy rabbit hole investigations and a lot of times that person is completely innocent but beyond risking having an innocent person being targeted by you know well-meaning vigilantes if you are right and they are the person who committed these crimes they could get tipped off and take additional steps to hide from justice They could run, they could change their appearance even more, they could come up with a more solid alibi. You know, really, it's so important that the police are able to kind of catch them off guard if they are the suspect. And so, again, just if you happen to solve a true crime case, make sure you take it to the police first and don't post on social media. Okay, with that said, on to the case. Delphi, Indiana is a small town located about an hour and a half north of Indianapolis. 
Its population is just under 3,000 and has remained steady for about 40 years. So it's definitely the type of town where people know each other. There's not a lot of newcomers that are coming to town. Families that are there have really been there for decades and tend to stay there. There's one elementary school, one middle school, and one high school. So people who are there all know each other. They all went to school together. Their families all interacted. One of the really great parts of Delphi is the nature surrounding it. Deer Creek runs parallel to the town and there is an abundance of hiking trails. In the winter, it snows a pretty good amount and it's common for schools to close for snow days during the winter. In the winter of 2016 going into 2017, the area experienced less snow days than the school had planned for, so that meant in the spring of 2017, the remaining snow days would be scheduled in advance and the kids would just kind of get a free day off. And that's what happened on Monday, February 13th. On that day, two friends, uh, 13-year-old Abigail Abby Williams and 14-year-old Liberty Libby German made plans to walk on a nature trail that led to this really cool abandoned railroad bridge that crossed over Deer Creek called the Monon High Bridge. The pair had done the walk before and they knew the bridge pretty well. And even though the bridge itself is over 60 feet tall and has no railings on the side, they were not afraid to cross it. Their plan was to get dropped off around 1.30 in the afternoon by Libby's older sister, Kelsey. Then they'd walk to the bridge, take photos for their social media, you know, do things that high school girls do. They planned on meeting Libby's dad at the entrance of the trail at about 3.15 or so, giving them a few hours on their own, and then they'd get picked up long before sunset. And so that's what they did that day. Kelsey dropped the preteens off at the trailhead, which is right across from the Mears farm on West 300. And I want to explain the area a little bit to give you an idea. And I'll also include a map on the website for you to see. So there are two trails in the area. One is kind of north-south, and then the other is kind of east-west. Now, the longer one has a trailhead near a highway overpass bridge called the Freedom Bridge, and that's a bit of a longer trail that leads directly to the Monon High Bridge. The other trail that goes north to south is much shorter and has a trailhead across from the Mears Farm on West 300 and leads south down to the waterline of Deer Creek. But these two trails intersect approximately a thousand feet before the Monon High Bridge. So after Kelsey dropped them off at the trailhead across from the Mears farm, she watched them walk the trail for a short time before driving away. Abby and Libby walked on the trail, then switched to the other trail that took them directly to the bridge, probably less than a half a mile walk through a forested area. Now it's also winter and a lot of the trees at the time had already dropped their leaves. So it wasn't a ton of overgrowth at that point. You could kind of see somewhat far down the trail. Once they got to the bridge, they crossed to the far side. Now on the far side of the bridge, the trail does continue on, but the girls knew not to go much further. They kind of stayed near the end of the bridge, and at that area, there are two kind of sloping hills on either side. They're not so steep that you wouldn't be able to walk up or down them, 
Um, but they're not part of the trail. And one side, the north side, actually leads to private property and a private driveway. While they were on the far side of the bridge, they decided to take some photos like they had planned. It was a really nice kind of winter day. It was chilly out, but it was clear and it was a really a nice day to take some pictures. Now, a little after 2 p.m., about 45 minutes after they'd been dropped off, Libby posted a picture on Snapchat of Abby on the far side of the bridge. So Abby didn't have a cell phone, so really the only way we're able to follow the story of the girls are from Libby's phone. And that post of Abby on the bridge was the last time that she posted on social media and the last time that either of the girls were seen alive. Around 3.15 p.m., Libby's father, Derek, drove up to the same trailhead where Kelsey had dropped the girls off, where he had planned on meeting the girls to pick them up and bring them back home. He had called Libby's phone when he was on the way there, but she didn't answer. So once he got to the trailhead, he tried to call Libby's phone again. But once again, it rang and rang without an answer. Initially, he didn't panic. He assumed the girls had possibly lost track of time or gotten the pickup time wrong, so he decided to leave his car and walk on the trail to go and get them. He made the short walk south on the trail to the point where it intersects with the other trail, the trail that leads to the bridge. It was around this point that he came across another man wearing a flannel shirt coming from the east, which is the direction of the Monon High Bridge. Libby's father asked this man if he had seen two girls up on the bridge, but the man replied that he hadn't seen them. So Libby's father decided not to go look that way for the girls. He trusted that this man would have said something if he had seen them. So he kind of ruled out the area of the bridge and decided to walk on the other trails to see if he could find them there. He first continued south down to the water's edge, but didn't see them. So he made his way back up to where the two trails intersect. Now, at this point, he was getting a little nervous. It really was not like Abby and Libby to kind of not be responsible, not show up on time, and also for Libby not to answer her phone. You know, she was a teenage girl. She was practically glued to her phone. And so he started to get nervous. He decided that he would walk on the last part of the trail where he believed that they could be, which was back towards the freeway overpass bridge, the Freedom Bridge. He made it all the way there and back, and still there was no sign of Libby or Abby. By now, it's about 4 p.m., and Derek's been looking for the girls for about 45 minutes with still zero sign of them. So he's starting to get really worried that maybe something happened to them. You know, maybe they fell or maybe one of the girls got bit by something. You know, who knows? But I'm sure that his mind was just reeling with the possibilities. So around this time, Libby's grandmother, aunt, and uncle head down to the trails and they join Derek in the search for the girls, along with Libby's sister, Kelsey, who had originally dropped them off. The family members search together on the trail that leads to the Monon High Bridge, calling out the girls' names as they walked and continuing to try to call Libby's phone, hoping that 
maybe if one of them had fallen or gotten caught up in something that they would be able to hear the phone ringing and be able to go help them. Kelsey and Libby's uncle Cody decided to cross the bridge to the southeast side to see if they could find any sign of the girls there. While on the far side of the bridge, Kelsey tried once again to call Libby's phone. Although it was ringing on her phone speaker so that she knew it was connecting, she couldn't hear a phone ringing out in the wilderness anywhere. So that led her to believe that Libby was not near them at that point. After searching on their own for about an hour, the family knew that there's only about an hour of daylight left and the girls need help. They call 911 and report the girls missing at about 5.20 p.m. Although Libby's family had been trying to reach Abby's mom, she had been at work throughout this whole time and had been unable to check her phone. She finally checked it and called Libby's grandmother a little after the girls had been officially reported missing and decided to meet with them at the police station where she kind of got the full story and got up to speed on what was happening. While at the police station, Libby's family members made an official report and documented exactly what time they had dropped the girls off, what they were wearing, the social media post, you know, all of that kind of stuff. The official search for the missing girls began right after the report was given, and word spread throughout the small community like wildfire. Soon, there were dozens of people at the trail searching for any sign of either of the girls, but sunset came quick at around 6 p.m. that night, limiting the abilities of the volunteers to see through some of the thick forested overgrowth near the trail. At midnight, the search was officially called off until daybreak out of concern for the safety of the volunteers. Although it was officially called off, many volunteers stayed out that night and really continued the search all night until daybreak. The next day was Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2017. Once again, dozens upon dozens of volunteers, firefighters, family members, law enforcement officials flooded the trails and the surrounding areas. At noon, a volunteer called out that he had found two bodies. After confirming that the description of the clothes was the same as what Kelsey had reported they were wearing when she dropped them off, it was confirmed that the bodies were those of Libby German and Abby Williams. The bodies were not found on the far side of the bridge where Libby's last Snapchat had been taken from, but across the water, about 50 feet to the north of the water's edge. Now, the water at the creek in this particular area is very, very shallow, so keep that in mind. Although police have never released the cause of death or what state the girls' bodies were in when they were found, they did immediately come out and say that they suspected foul play. When pressed as to why that was believed, Indiana State Police Public Information Officer Kim Riley said, quote, just the way the bodies were found. That's about all I can say at this point in time, end quote. Police were confident at first that they would be able to find, that they would be able to identify a suspect and arrest them quickly. 
being that Delphi is such a small community, it seemed really likely that someone would know something and come forward relatively quickly. Along with the bodies, Libby's cell phone was also recovered, and upon looking at its camera roll, police found something shocking. Apparently, Abby and Libby had felt uncomfortable because a man was following them on the bridge. Libby had the presence of mind to take out her phone and record the man. Although police originally only released still images from this recording and to this day have only released a very, very short segment of the video, they say that most of the recording doesn't really have any video that would be helpful, as if Libby had placed it in her jacket or pocket or something and there's no video of anything and the audio doesn't provide any more help. They've also stated that they don't want to put the investigation at risk by releasing more than they need to. But there's a few seconds of video and audio that do show the suspect an audio of his voice. The audio, when it was first released by police, was extremely distorted and very difficult to hear, but since then, it has been cleaned up by audio technicians who are very good at their jobs, and this is what we are able to hear now. If that was a little hard to hear, it's a man's voice saying, guys, down the hill. Now, I played that for you three times, but it was only once in the recording, and I just wanted to make sure that you heard it, that you got a good uh, understanding of what this person's voice sounds like, the inflections that they have. Um, I know that it's not a lot of audio, but it's kind of all that we have to work on. The video that was released It shows a man in a pair of blue jeans, worker boots, a jacket, and possibly a hoodie or a flannel or something underneath it, and maybe some sort of hat on. Now, the video was shaky at best and really had to be cleaned up as well, and it was also taken at a fair distance, so the image is not crystal clear, and it leaves a little room for imagination to fill in the man's facial details. That recording and that video are really all of the evidence that has been released to the public from police at this point. And from those key pieces of evidence, plus knowing where the bodies of Libby and Abby were found, we can piece together a sort of understanding of their last moments. This man followed them and obviously creeped them out in some way, until he finally approached them and ordered them to go down the hill. At that point, he likely made them cross the very shallow water to the north side of the bank and murdered them. Police also questioned everyone that they could find who had been walking on the trail that day, including the man who Libby's father Derek had come across on the trail, And from those eyewitness statements, they were able to create a composite sketch of someone they believed to be a person of interest. Now, there's actually two sketches that were created. One of them has been ruled out as the main suspect, although police haven't said how they've come to that conclusion, how they've ruled that person out. 
The focus now has shifted to a second police sketch that was actually not released until 2019. For almost five years, the families of Abby Williams and Libby German have waited for good news to find out that a suspect has been arrested, but they haven't gotten that good news yet. Although in 2019, police released the clip from the recording of Libby's phone and they released the guys portion of the uh, guys down the hill audio, still to this day, no one has been arrested in connection to the murders. But they are fairly convinced that the man in the sketch is responsible for the murders. And it's just a matter of time before someone who knows the man sees the sketch and connects the dots. It is believed that the man is from the Delphi area or has spent a good amount of time there. The trail is really popular with locals, but it wasn't really well known outside of the Delphi area before these murders. It's also possible that he knew that school was off that day and he went to the trail in hopes of finding victims. He's a white male between 18 and 40, but police say that he might look younger than he actually is. He's got kind of a baby face. It's very round and he has hooded eyes. Police have also said some other very cryptic things, like that there were several signatures that the killer left at the scene. And I don't mean like physically signing his name, that kind of signature, but more specific things that he did at the scene as kind of like a ritual sort of thing. It could be something small, like partially covering the girls or something big. We really don't know because police have been extremely tight-lipped about the crime scene and how the bodies were found. The cause of death for the girls still has not been released to this day. So now a plea from me to you. Please check out the photos, audio, and video from this case and think really hard about if you know someone who might match the description. Also, please share the case with others, especially if you know someone in the Indiana area. The more people who hear about it, who watch the recording from Libby's phone and hear the audio, the better chances are that this monster can be brought to justice. Now, at the same time, as I stated in the beginning of this episode, do not publicly share the name or information of someone who you believe may be the killer in this case or in any case. That information should go straight to law enforcement. So if you do have any information or even just a hunch that you think you should share, please email Abby and Libby Tip at C-A-C-O-S-H-R-F. That is the official tip line for the case. Police are still actively investigating. There's a whole police crew that is focused on this case and this case alone. And they hope that soon they can bring a little bit of closure to the families. Thank you for listening to this Morbid Tourism episode about the Monon High Bridge in Delphi, Indiana. We're going to be taking a short break over the holidays, but we will return in January with more episodes. In the meantime, if you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to Morbid Tourism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please leave a rating or review. Let us know what you think. 
Between episodes, you can visit www.morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. Follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger, with additional research by Amanda Poikert. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia, Down the Hill Podcast, My Favorite Murder Podcast, ActusReyes.com, and Channel 13 WHTR News.